Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 22 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on March 8th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the leak of a potential new Star Wars game, GeForce Now making waves in the cloud space, and the long-anticipated arrival of Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XCP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse pertaining to the Xbox ecosystem. This week releasing just a day later than as is typical in order to respect the review embargo for Ori and the Will of the Wisps. It's been long awaited in its five-year hiatus, and I've got review impressions for you later on in the show as I've been playing it for the past few days. Plenty to talk about in that topic. But first, we begin with a new potential Star Wars game leaked this past past week, Star Wars Project Maverick. Now exactly what Star Wars Project Maverick is remains to be seen. However, we do have some information that is credible, others a bit nebulous, and let's examine what they mean when put together. First, this leak comes courtesy of a data mine from a Twitter bot that mines the PlayStation Network for new and upcoming PlayStation 4 titles and updates. In this, it extracted artwork that features a lone Imperial Star Destroyer and a small fleet of X-Wings. Imperial Star Destroyers are from the original trilogy, and this implies the project would take place there. That's encouraging for a lot of Star Wars fans who have their roots in Star Wars gaming by way of flight sim series like X-Wing or Rogue Squadron, all the way up to the more recently we've seen that type of mode in Starfighter Assault for Battlefront 2. According to a report from Kotaku, however, Jason Trier says that there are two Star Wars games currently in development, the first being a sequel to the highly successful Jedi Fallen Order, a game I absolutely adore, and a smaller, more unusual project that is being made by EA Motive. Now, EA Motive, I believe, worked in Star Wars Battlefront 2 on Starfighter Assault Mode. This again lends credence to the idea that this might be a flight sim game. Looking back at that artwork with it, when you have that small fleet of X-Wings, when you have uh, that Star Destroyer there, using Starfighters to attack capital ships was a mainstay in a number of different Star Wars gaming experiences. All the more interesting, though, is that in that same image, you see the planet Mustafar, which was Darth Vader's planet where he was created in Episode 3. You visit it again in Rogue One, again in Rise of Skywalker, and it's the feature of a number of different book and game locales. This planet has a lot of significance. So what might it be? I'm thinking it's a dogfighting game, perhaps, but even more likely, I think it's a PSVR project. For this to be leaked for the first time on the PlayStation Network, for Jason Schreier to be describing the second game as smaller and more unusual, we saw a PSVR title with the Battlefront series in that Starfighter mode in the first Battlefront. We know that that was a thing that was worked on, it did release, it was a small experience. Would they be making a second experience like that? Would that be a project to be, to be putting effort into? There is no doubt that EA wants to retain the Star Wars license or at least continue making games with the Star Wars brand, but their exclusivity deal is expiring in the coming years, so they need to find a lucrative way to continue bringing in that money and continue creating games that people want. They managed to recover Star Wars Battlefront 2, not a topic that I have not covered before. I certainly love that game in its current iteration. Fallen Order was a hit success, although plenty of issues therein. 
So what do we see EA do? It's, it is possible we see a PSVR game. It's also possible, and my sincere hope, that we get an X-Wing game that is not specific to PSVR because I want it on the Xbox platform. I want to play it on the most powerful system. I want to play it on my console. That's where I would love to play all of my Star Wars experiences. So what exactly Maverick is, we don't know, but it is my sincere hope that it is an X-Wing or Rogue Squadron style game. That flights him with this Star Wars aesthetic is just picture perfect in my mind and brings me back to the most nostalgic and best gaming memories that I think I've ever had. Uh, along with the Rogue Squadron games, the N64 and GameCube had brilliant Rogue Squadron experiences. The idea that Maverick might bring us that is wonderful. I will tell you my most sincere hope, though, is that whatever this is, it is not platform specific. As much as I would love to play this on my Xbox, as I do, I want to see it in 4K and look the best. I don't want it to be platform specific. I want it to stay agnostic. I want it to stay available to any and all gamers. I don't want to see just a VR title. I don't want to see just a PlayStation title. I don't want to see just an Xbox title because Star Wars is for everyone. And it would be lovely to see whatever Star Wars games come out be available for more people to play. Now, out of speculation and into more practical news that we've seen happening right before our very eyes, last month, NVIDIA, they launched a game streaming service similar to Project xCloud, similar to Google Stadia, but it was called GeForce Now. It came out of beta officially, and what it does is allow you to access games that you've purchased on various PC platforms, and it culminates them all into one place, and you are able to play them via cloud streaming. What GeForce does is give you the processing and compute power to play those games high in high-profile settings without having to have the local compute power. So it works in a very similar premise to xCloud. However, it seems that NVIDIA is running into some trouble here as a number of publishers have pulled their games from the service. Activision Blizzard, Bethesda, Hinterland Games, they pulled their titles and now 2K Games is also pulling out of their service. And there's a lot of ideas here about what this could or couldn't mean. It seems that GeForce Now did not prep developers and publishers for what this service might mean and that the experiences had by gamers might not be what the, what the publishers and developers had in mind. How does this affect xCloud? How does this affect Google Stadia? In large part, I don't think it will. When GeForce Now came onto the market, or rather I should say out of beta, it started raising a lot of eyebrows because quite simply, the service worked. People were playing their games from a number of different host services, putting it into GeForce Now, games they already owned, mind you. These are games that they had purchased, available in Steam and other places, and they didn't have the compute power on their local hardware to utilize it. So GeForce Now brought them those games under one major umbrella, and it was essentially providing the service, the compute power in the cloud, so people could experience those games. With them not exposing or letting publishers know ahead of time, they might be running into some, some legal troubles here and there. But the service did work and thus raised a lot of eyebrows. If or whether or not this affects Google Stadia, and more specifically pertinent to us, Project xCloud, I sincerely doubt it. In all likelihood, what Microsoft did was look at how GeForce now executed on their vision, noted what went well, what did not go well, and is making preparations to avoid the same mistakes that GeForce now might have had. But what's so encouraging is that GeForce now came out of nowhere and did make an impact on the market, did raise eyebrows, and that has to continue pushing Microsoft to make the best product possible in the xCloud streaming service. Something that I am quite comfortable in saying they are doing, given all the things we've seen over the past few years. Bottom line, what happens with GeForce now is going to be relevant and pertinent for us to watch, but it doesn't necessarily impact the current Microsoft ecosystem for now or the early foreseeable future. 
On now to the game that cannot seem to die despite being dead for three years at this point, Scalebound, the one-time Xbox exclusive developed by Platinum Games that was cancelled mid-development, uh, is once again back in the news, this time with Platinum Games studio director Hideki Kamiya bringing Scalebound up during a seemingly drunken livestream while they were celebrating the successful Kickstarter of The Wonderful 101. What was odd about this is that Kamiya looks straight at the screen at one point and says, I want to make Scalebound. Email Microsoft. And uh, it, it was a pretty awkward moment, particularly given the details that we do and do not know surrounding the cancellation of that Platinum Games title. Now, worth noting that Kamiya is known for making cheeky, off-the-cuff comments like this. He one time teased Okami 2, and that was not even in development, but he did it just to get fans up into a tizzy. And getting people into a tizzy seems to be the result of this. In looking at that screen and bringing up Scalebound yet again, it seemed to make ex-Platinum Games developer Jean-Pierre Kellums rather upset, and he took to Twitter at this point and said, quote, We had our chance to make Scalebound. We failed. They know why we failed. Lots of great people left after we failed. Some because we failed. I'm sad that it is now a drunken meme. End quote. And again, that was former Platinum Games developer Jean-Pierre Kellum saying that. And you have to imagine what he means by that, but also the general vibe around the current state of Platinum Games with Scalebound, and why bring it up at all. Kellum's was, you know, after taking to Twitter and saying that whilst quoting it, uh, he engaged in a number of other smaller conversations on Twitter with fans asking him what happened. And he stated politely, I thought, uh, but in very direct fashion, that it wasn't their business. There are reasons and things that went on, and he still reiterates that they failed. And for a lot of those reasons, it's private. It's a business aspect. I completely understand fans wanting to know. I really do, because I also want to know. Like, what in the world took place for a desperate Microsoft at the time, desperate for exclusives, desperate for high-profile titles? In what world does it take place that they are willing to cancel a high-profile third-party exclusive? There's got to be reasons surrounding it, and so I, too, am very curious. But Kellums was not willing to share it, and it seems there must be some rather heavy implications and reasoning behind it. Some of them, I've heard speculation on various levels of legality and influence and money is being used or not used properly. And frankly, at that point, I don't care. What I want to know is, on the record, reasons why that game was canceled. But if I, am I want to know? Are we better off knowing? I don't know. That's the great question. We see so often, we hear so often, this game was canceled. This game was in development and then taken away and canceled. Are we as fans or as gamers better off knowing those things? Am I better knowing that Star Wars 1313 was canceled? Am I better off knowing that there were two different Superman titles that have begun and canceled their own development cycles because things didn't work out? Really and truly, I don't know if I am or not. I feel like it just serves to get fans frustrated or, or rallied up and then disappointed later on. By the same token, I think I'd be equally disappointed to think that you know there were no DC games uh, in production. I'd be disappointed to know that Batman wasn't being brought back. Which is, by the way, hey, hey, WB Montreal, Rocksteady, where's it at? It's been like a bajillion years. Where's the Batman game? Whew. I'm going to get all heated. Hmm. But anywho, that was just something worth noting about the Scalebound uh, team yet again bringing themselves into the news here. And you got to imagine, uh, Hideki Kamiya needs to chill out with that. At the very least, back it off, because if there is any hope of that project being rebooted, he needs a healthy relationship. And if Kellums is being truthful in this, and people did leave a studio because of that failure, there must be high-reaching, or far-reaching, I should say, implications of it. 
who knows? Maybe maybe we'll never know. I do hope we find out at some point, but I need it to be uh, the appropriate way. A Twitter scandal or a drunken live stream is not one of them. Time now to discuss the beautiful Metroidvania that is Ori and the Will of the Wisps, coming out five years later to the day of Ori and the Blind Forest on March 11th, 2020. Game Pass owners and those who spend $30 alike will be able to experience Will of the Wisps. Now, before I get into my impressions of the game, I do want to make a few things clear. Microsoft provided me with the code several days early, so at this point in the time of recording, I'm about six hours into the game and thoroughly enjoying my time. My progress meter says about 33 to 38% based on where I'm at at this moment. I played on an Xbox One X and a 4K TV. I wore my Arctis 9X headphones as well as just using my soundbar. And all of the experiences have been truly wonderful, barring a few minor hiccups. Now let's begin first by acknowledging that this game has a gorgeous set of environments that depict brilliant scenes of nature. There are lush leaves and bushes that might cascade down in the background or foreground with sunlight passing through, moonlight passing through, and brilliant rays of light, uh, as well as incredible shadow effects. There are gleaming aquatic effects that might reflect light at any given time or bounce with droplets of water as you move through uh, or enemies traverse and fall into water. There's a world here that feels truly alive within its own rules of gameplay. Twigs and trees will crack underneath the appropriate amount of force, whether you're running, walking, or jumping or landing after a, a large fall. Rushing water or gusts of wind will echo into your ears with your, if you're wearing headphones and your sound um, your TV sounds will reflect that accordingly. Ori reacts to every single challenge with a quiet calmness that simultaneously it exudes power but also a, a full state of vulnerability. Each moment of traversal is supported by an accompaniment of orchestral sounds that build and crash with emotion as Ori faces off uh, in platforming or combative challenges. And challenges are the entirety of the game. Ori is faced with a number of both gameplay style challenges and emotional ones, because if you are unfamiliar with the Ori franchise, you will feel emotions throughout your journey as Ori. In the six-ish hours that I have played at this point, I have teared up no less than twice due to some brilliant non-verbal and environmental storytelling. The atmosphere involved in creating a game like this and the, the level of immersion that the player feels if they empathize with Ori and his struggles is amped tenfold up from nearly any other gaming experience that I have had. Everything that Ori does, he reacts to with subtle movements and gestures, whether it's his ears folding back similar to a, a beloved pet or a perking up of his eyes uh, and a, an excited jump or kick up into the air. It, it all makes you feel connected to Ori throughout. In fact, I, I do not say this lightly, mind you, but I would argue that the impressions and the inflections of his movements put Ori and the, and the Will of the Wisps on par with any and the best of Pixar-level animation. There is a connection that the player feels throughout to Ori because of the struggles that he is facing with this emotional journey that truly is about restoring and bringing his family back together. That same family that you initially built in Ori in the Blind Forest. I should note also, Ori in the Blind Forest, as well as Ori in the Will of the Wisps, are available in Game Pass and that you would do yourself a favor and a treat to go and experience both if you've not already. 
What's so impressive about Ori and the Will of the Wisps is that while each moment is beautiful and vibrant, the gameplay exists in a perfect match of harmony. Traversal is challenging at all times, but is always fair. Never once have I gone through in my time with the game thus far and felt like what, what I was being faced with was unfair. Merely a level of platforming traversal that I needed to understand in order to successfully perform. The buttons feel appropriately mapped. I was using my Elite Series X with the paddle button on the back for jump uh, by choice. And I felt that that suited my thumbsticks and my, my abilities quite well. There is an incredible level of design through each and every placement of a bush, of thorns, of a wind gust, of something that you can take advantage of with Ori's many and many abilities that you add to throughout. One of the things that's noted is that an array of abilities are unlocked as you play through, but each of them expand on Ori's original moveset from Ori in the Blind Forest. If you're unfamiliar with that game, you don't need to be because they are explained to you so well. Combat against larger enemies often requires you to pay attention and be patient and choose your moments of what it is you are trying to do or need to do to accomplish uh, overcoming that foe. And it's almost never has it been with brute force. Sometimes you truly must run. Sometimes it's a dodge. Sometimes it's timing and jumping away at just the right moment and then knowing when to attack and be very aggressive. It's all super well done. I noticed when I was tired and not paying attention to the hints that the game would quietly give me through environmental storytelling or through just subtle hints and nods as to the reactions of the enemy types, I would die very quickly. But when I was alert, paying attention, and giving the game uh, all of my focus, I would be just fine and I would learn very quickly. Like all Metroidvanias, there is backtracking and a healthy amount of reward for exploration. You'll improve your, your life bar, your ability bar, your energy, and your stamina as you go, as well as gaining new, new abilities that are not necessarily required to my knowledge at this point. Uh, it's improved on the first game, and the supporting cast has a lot to offer in the way of side quests. Each of these side quests uh, might have their own gameplay rewards, but I felt compelled to complete them simply because they have remarkably adorable characters and it made me happy to help them in their various trials. The supporting cast is far stronger in Will of the Wisps than it was in Ori in the Blind Forest, and I feel connected to the world in a way that I didn't in Ori in the Blind Forest, and I felt connected there too, so that should truly say something about Will of the Wisps. Moving through Ori and the Will of the Wisps, it is a clear masterclass example of environmental storytelling. Statues of battles long gone adorn the levels as, they, as you move through damaged terrain. Uh, giant creatures might crash through and break things to open certain parts of the level up at various points. And there's a consistent feeling of Ori feeling haunted by a past that he didn't participate in. There is something to his species that they had an impact on this world, but that Ori did not himself. And so he's constantly bearing the burdens of that, but also being ignorant as to what specifically happened. And as the player moving through with Ori, I felt compelled to help him entirely on his journey for answers. I love the connection that I created over the six hours with these characters. I'm excited to continue going with them. I should also note that in this time with the game, I did encounter a few frame rate stutters from time to time while playing on an Xbox One X. Never once did it hinder the experience or remove me or take me out of it, but it was notable and it did surprise me given the extreme levels of polish in design and in artwork throughout. 
brilliant colors, brilliant animations, a brilliant soundtrack. They make this game a must-play for any gamer, and that's all the more easy a recommendation to give, given that the game is available in Game Pass, and that's where you should be taking advantage of it. I will also note for any of you who might be balking at the idea of challenge, there is an easy mode, and I encourage anyone to try this out if the discussions of difficulty give you pause on any level. The game's far easier than, say, Cuphead, but it is challenging nonetheless on normal mode. But drop it down to easy if that's what's going to help you have fun. There are race to the top leaderboards, there are, there are spirit trials, which add a different level of competition for those who are interested, but I didn't find myself overly compelled to participate in them because for me, Ori and the Will of the Wisps is an emotional journey. Anytime I identify with that cute and adorable character, I'm, I'm not interested in competing with anybody. I'm interested in helping Ori through his journey. Uh, if you are a mother or a father, an aunt or somebody with access to this game and you have children in your life, I strongly recommend letting them sit next to you while you play or putting the sticks into their hand, put it on easy, and let them experience this visual showcase. As I said before, I very much feel this game is on, the pa on par and on level with the best that Pixar or Disney Animation has to offer. And I do not say that lightly. I want to be very clear about that. There's just a a level of pure quality here that is unrivaled in the gaming verse. Without a doubt, this is a must-play game. Now, we did get a few questions about Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and one or two of them I will acknowledge very quickly. Blaze Knight wrote in asking, uh, do they use a more modern and convenient autosave feature, or do they stick with the classic remember-to-save-every-couple-of-jumps method? Uh, Blaze Knight, I will be happy to report that in my many deaths thus far, there are fast qu and quick restarts very close to where I passed away. There are indeed warp points that offer saves and, and refilling of your uh, different stamina meters and your life bars, but the game has a very re rewarding checkpoint system that I've been able to experience thus far. Never once have I died and been frustrated at having to go back for 15-20 minutes to go through. So take that for what you will, but I would say that given its availability in Game Pass, uh, you're going to find yourself a very approachable game. Set it on easy, set it on normal, so be it. If any of you out there are willing to set it on hard and report back to me, do let me know, but that's not a level of frustration that I'm particularly interested in because I want to be immersed into this story. Again, I stress, play Ori in the Blind Forest and then play Ori in the Will of the Wisps because it is a golden example of brilliant game design. Now, before we get out of here, we do have a few other listener questions to address here. First, uh, Edward Varnell writes in, Will we ever see Microsoft cater to more gaming interest with their first-party games, similar to Elite Beat Agents, Hotel Dusk 213, or Brain Age? And that's an interesting conundrum. I don't think the answer is yes right now, uh, Edward, because when you have games like Elite Beat Agents or Hotel Dusk or even Brain Age, they do offer mass appeal, but mass appeal did not serve Microsoft well during the Xbox 360 era when they brought in the avatars, when they brought in the Kinect and the dancing games. It was really only Dance Central that seemed to catch on with the mainstream, and a lot of those games that were perhaps a bit more relaxed or offered experiences similar to what you're talking about, they didn't seem to do well on a platform that, because its name is Xbox and it has that bleed green mentality and it built its name upon shooters and connected gameplay, I don't feel that the audience picks up a Game Pass, or uh, pardon me, an Xbox, and thinks to themselves, that's the experience I want to have, is something like Brain Age. That's not to say it couldn't exist, and with the implication and the improvements that Game Pass is making thus far, I have to wonder if it's maybe an avenue down the line. But for now, I would imagine they are steering away, or at the very least, not encouraging those things. 
Now, to that same point, we know that given the amount of studios they now have under the Microsoft or Xbox Game Studios banner, maybe it's the primary teams that are making those heavy hitters that I'm alluding to. But those secondary teams that are making experiences like Grounded, maybe they stumble onto something like that that we're all interested in. Maybe Ninja Theory's Project Mara, when they wrap up that idea, maybe they go and explore something else that's different. So I don't think the first party Prime Studios in each of those cases would, would do what you're asking. But it's certainly possible that the secondary teams that exist to kind of grow creativity within those studios, maybe they tackle that. Good question, Edward. Thank you. The next question comes from Hypecaster, always glorious at writing in. By the way, Hypecaster, congratulations on the birth of your first child. I love you very much, my friend, and I am very proud and happy for you. Player 3 has entered the game, and if you are listening to this, anyone, please offer Hypecaster your well wishes on Twitter. He asks, what do you think of Xbox gems that hit that were geared towards the crowd that enjoys a challenge? He offers examples like Cuphead, Ori, Ashen. The question being, do you think Xbox needs more games that can be enjoyed by the mainstream, or should they go the Sony route and deliver Bloodborne, Neo, and Sekiro-style games? That's a good question, Antonio, and I would allude earlier to what I said about Edward Varnell's question. Maybe it's the secondary teams that offer you what you're asking, but when it comes to games like Cuphead, Ori, Ashen, they do have a high level of difficulty, perhaps not on the level of Sekiro or... Uh, Bloodborne or Neo, but they have a high level of difficulty, and I don't think that's hurting them per se. I do notice, again, I, I said in the Ori review that there is an easy mode, and that's, I think, an important aspect. I think Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order taught us that having an easy mode in that style game is important. To a far lesser extent, Darksiders 3 offered that uh, because they had that same level of intensity and gameplay at a higher difficulty level, and bringing it down makes it more approachable. Microsoft's challenge at this point is to make compelling IP and make things interesting. I don't think pigeonholing them into any one aspect of difficulty or genre is what they need right now. They need diversity. I do think we need to see more approachable games for those who don't want to challenge, and it's likely Compulsion and a few uh, others, Tim Schafer Studio, that, that bring those more approachable series. But Halo has easy modes, and they are wonderfully approachable and excitable. Uh, exciting, I should say. Bloodborne, Nero, Sekiro, those needs are being fulfilled by third-party developers. Again, I remind you that Sekiro is a third-party game, Jedi Fallen Order a third-party game, and there are other difficult games out there for that route. I think what Microsoft needs to do right now is not force anything. They've got a brilliant umbrella of studios that are making any number of projects from a first team, a second team, and third team perspective, and they need to let those developers create. And all current indications suggest they are indeed doing that. So here's hoping that's what happens and that's what goes on in the future. As we close out this week's episode, uh, a shorter episode this weekend, I'm absolutely fine with it. I hope you guys don't mind one bit. I will let you know that later on this week coming up, I'm interviewing the developer of Infliction Extended Cut, a horror first-person title that is terrifying me thus far. I'm several hours in and uh, truly horrified it, but I'll be interviewing the developer, Caustic Reality, about this game. Now, what makes it so interesting and what makes me look so looking forward to this interview is that it's a one-man studio, this one-man by himself created this series and this game and it's quite fun in, in the horror realm i'm not typically a horror guy but it does a number of the the first person jump scares along with atmospheric storytelling which is neat to see in a horror space so i'm curious to hear uh what the the creation of a video game is like when you are building
building solo and without a team when you're in charge of everything from from the level design to the music to the audio cues to the to gameplay cues etc etc i'm interested to see what happens here uh, and what it's like and what what Clinton compares uh, working on a team like to being solo, and that'll be an interesting one for next week's episode. I can also tell you with a tip of the hat and a grin on my face that you have a number of interviews coming up in the next two months. The GDC scheduling did throw off a few of my my guests, but in the best ways, I think you'll be excited once those things come to pass. But all good things come to those who wait. I don't want this show to be strictly interview-based. Uh, I'm excited when you guys are, are, are kind enough to tune in and, and listen and share w- with everybody else. One of the neatest things on this XEP journey has been the wonder of, will anyone listen? Will anyone show up? Will anyone offer support? And I'm seeing it, guys, and I appreciate it. The numbers go up every week. Downloads go up every week. You're you're reviewing it. You're sharing it. And truly, most of all, what matters most to me is that I hear from you. You can email me at insipidghost uh, at gmail.com, insipidghost at gmail.com. Let me know what you think there. You can leave an iTunes review. You can tweet me at insipidghost or DM me. There, My DMs are always open. And you guys are doing that. And it means the absolute world because what I look forward to most every week is talking about video games, whether I'm a guest on someone else's show, but far more primarily being here with you guys on XEP because uh, what a journey it is. It's a unique thing to do a, a solo show every week. It is difficult. It's easy. It's it's frustrating. It's scary. It's exciting, and it's fun, and uh, you guys are here for me, and I appreciate that. So have a wonderful rest of your week. Do let me know what you're gaming. I, th- I, I should tell you, I just purchased Sniper Ghost Warrior Contract. It's a budget title from CI Games. I do like Sniper Games. Uh, I think I've told you that with Zombie Army Trilogy. I'm playing that right now. And that, that is actually really good, uh, which surprised me because Sniper Ghost Warrior 3, not good. But I'm really enjoying Ghost Warrior Contracts. That's one to look at if you like Sniper Games. I'm also, of course, going to be playing through more of Ori and Infliction. Uh, but, man, what a time. The, the, the season is upon us. Ori kicks off a, a rather hectic season. All eyes on Doom Eternal, that's for sure. That's it for me, everybody. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care. Thank you.